Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. We're going to look at the first 17 verses this morning of the 18th chapter of the book of Acts. Paul is in Corinth. He just arrives Luke records this, after this, meaning after his time in Athens, Paul left and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, the emperor, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. There was a big conflict in Rome uh, amongst the Christians and the Jews. The Jews were persecuting the Christians. And it was all revolved around someone by the name of Crestus. And most commentators think that that was actually Christ. And so the Jews were all in a tumult. They were in rebellion. And so the emperor Claudius ordered them to leave Rome. And Aquila and Priscilla were among them. So Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." Then Paul left the synagogue, and he went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler in his entire household, believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard and believed were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court, and then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatever. Is that the word of the Lord? Yes, it is. Anybody here ever been discouraged? Just a few of you. Okay. Discouragement. Discouragement always leads to something. What effect does discouragement have in a person's life, do you think? Just think back. Last time you were discouraged, what happened next? I submit to you, that discouragement always leads to sin. 
always leads to sin. If your recovery time is slow, it will always lead you to sin. Why? Because you're dead in the water. Discouraged people are dead in the water. And they will fall back and resort to things that they are used to doing in the past. They will sin. We get discouraged largely because we have forgotten that we're, it's, it's not about us. Things happen, don't they? Stuff happens. And when stuff happens, if you've lost sight of your commitment to the Lord and it's about serving him regardless of what goes on, you can easily become discouraged. And I submit to you again, discouragement leads to sin. I believe that discouragement is one of Satan's greatest weapons to disable the Christian worker. He will come and he will use whatever circumstance, blow in your ear and try to discourage you. Trust me. And that leads to sin. Just look into your own life. What's happened when you were discouraged? It doesn't just happen to you without some kind of cause, some kind of effect into your life. The devil's at work. We don't need to fear him. We just need to be aware. Remember, Paul says, be on your alert. Your enemy, the devil, is roaming about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may what? Devour. He wants to chew us up. He wants to disable us. And that leads us simply to sin. There's an old allegory. I want to read it to you. I thought this illustrates this marvelously. Satan called together a council of his impish servants to consult how they might make a good man, or for that matter, a good woman, sin. One evil spirit started up and said, I will make him sin. How will you do it? asked Satan. I will set before him the pleasures of sin, was the reply. I will tell him of its delights and rich rewards that it brings. Ah, said Satan, that will not do. He has tried it and knows better than that. Another imp started up and said, I will make him sin. What will you do? asked Satan. I will tell him of the pains and the sorrows of virtue. I will show him that virtue has no delights and brings no rewards. Ah, no, exclaimed Satan. That will not do at all, for he has tried it. And he knows that wisdom's ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. Well, said another imp starting up, I will undertake to make him sin. And what will you do, asked Satan? I will discourage his soul, was the short reply. I will discourage his soul. Ah, that will do, cried Satan. That will do. We shall conquer him now. Ooh, is that scary? It ought to be. It ought to be. I think that's very real. Although it's an allegory, I think it's very real. Satan has, a scot, has sought to discourage people. He is called the deceiver, among other things, isn't he? Part of deceiving people is to discourage them. He has sought to discourage God's people down through the ages, and he has sought to discourage not only the people, his servants, but he's also sought to discourage even the people he's put in leadership of his people. How many remember Moses? Remember Moses? 
Do you think Moses ever got discouraged? Oh, yes. Let me read to you for the 11th chapter of um, the book of Numbers. Now, Moses is leading that large group of Israelites through the wilderness, right? And they get to the place where they are sick and tired of God's provision. What has God provided for them? Manna. You want to be careful about complaining about God's provision. We hate this manna. We want meat. Does God know exactly what we need? Yes, he does. So they complain. Now listen to what Moses says to God. Verse 10, Numbers chapter 11. Moses heard the people of every, every family. They were all whining, wailing, each at the entrance of his tent. And the Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? <laughs> I love that. Why me? Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, kill me right now. Does he sound discouraged? I guess. I, Moses. Moses. And what does he say? He throws his hands up in despair. He says, kill me now. Be done with it. Not only Moses, Joshua. Joshua. Who in the first chapter of the book of Joshua, God says to him, don't be afraid, I am with you. And he rehearses that two or three times. Most of you know who've read the book. Now, when Joshua led the people into the promised land, they crossed over the Jordan River. What city did they come to? Jericho. And God would give Jericho into the hands. How did that happen? God told them what? He said, get all your cannons and everything. And, and No, he said, just what? March around the city seven times. And then on the seventh day, just shout. And the walls will fall down. Did they obey him? Yeah, yeah, they do it. And then sure enough, the walls fall. They capture the city. Now, God told them, remember, the Jericho is holy to me. Jericho is the very first city in the land that they would conquer. It's holy to the Lord. In effect, Jericho is a tithe of the land to the Lord. Don't take any spoils from the city. Everything is mine, God says. Did they obey him? Well, almost everybody except one person. Well, Achan, right? Achan steals some of the goods, hides him in his tent, unbeknownst to Joshua and unbeknownst to the rest of the Israelites. So they get ready to go conquer the second city. Second city was a little tiny podunk city up in the hills by the name of Ai. 
They should have been able to conquer this city in their sleep. In fact, they thought they could. So they, get, they man up, they go to conquer Ai, and Ai kicks their behind. Remember that? And they, and Joshua just beside himself, he says, what has happened? Now listen to what Joshua says in Joshua chapter 7, verse 7. And Joshua said, ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? Does this Joshua sound a little discouraged? I think so. How many remember Elijah? 1 Kings chapter 18. This is one of the greatest accounts, I think, in the Old Testament. This is awesome. There is a drought. There's been a three-year drought in the land. Wicked King Ahab is the king and his lovely wife Jezebel. So they're ruling the land. There's a, there's a, and the people are immersed in idolatry. There is this drought for three years. Elijah comes and he's going to pray to God and ask that God to break the drought. But he gathers all the false prophets. There's 850 of them gathers them for a contest between Elijah's God and the God of the Baals and the God of Asherah. And so they gather up on the top of the mountain. They build an altar. And the gods, the, the prophets call on their gods, call on their gods all day. They're going through all these machinations. Nothing happens. You read the account and Elijah kind of mocks them a little bit. Where, where are your gods? Have they gone aside? Maybe they're asleep. Maybe they're in the bathroom. They don't hear you. And then Elijah says, step aside. He calls on his God. What happens? He calls fire from heaven and fire falls from heaven, consumes the offering, consumes the altar, and then he has those 850 false prophets slaughtered And then it rains. The drought is broken. Do you remember he tells his servant, go, go tell me if you see anything on the horizon. Comes back several times. He says, I see a cloud the size of a man's fist. Tells Ahab, get ready, it's going to rain. So all that's going on. Now we pick up the account in chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them, meaning the prophets. In other words, I'm going to kill you. Elijah said, No such thing will happen. The God of Israel is my provider. <laughs> no. What does it say? And Elijah he was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. 
I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Elijah, after witnessing this incredible miracle, fire from heaven, the drought is broken, rain comes, and he succumbs to Jezebel's threat. Is that the swing of the pendulum? Do you think Elijah was discouraged? Yeah, he wants to die. Kill me now. Job. How many remember Job? Did Job's world, in effect, collapse all around him? I guess. He lost everything except what? His, his, his health in the sense that God didn't have him killed. He loses everything. So after his world collapsed around him, and it seems to him like God has abandoned him, Job, in chapter 3, cursed the day he was born. Listen to these words. Job chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said, a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadows claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, not entered into any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse the Leviathan. And, and on and on he goes. Does this sound like Job might be a little bit discouraged? I guess. I guess. And then in chapter 9, Job complains bitterly about God's treatment of him. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe that he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me regain my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. If it's a matter of strength, he's mighty. And if it is a matter of justice, who will summon him? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, he would pronounce me guilty. So here's Job, and I submit to you that Job, just like all the others, had to be discouraged by what had happened around his life. Who wouldn't be discouraged? Who wouldn't be tempted at least to be discouraged? Would you agree? Do you think the Apostle Paul ever got discouraged? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going to look into this count in chapter 18. We find Paul literally at a low point in his life. His second missionary journey has just been completed. It had been difficult. It had been trying. He traveled... Luke tells us in chapter 15, verse 41, he had traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening all the churches that he and Silas had started. He crosses over the Aegean Sea, finds himself in Macedonia. He's in Philippi. What does he do in Philippi? He frees a demon-possessed slave girl from that possession. That event sparks what? A riot. And he and Silas then 
are taken captive, they're beaten, and they're put in prison. What would you think? After they're freed from the prison, they're forced to leave the city. They're persona non grata in Philippi. From there, he and Silas go to Thessalonica, where again, they're opposed. And persecution in Thessalonica forces them to flee to the next town, Berea. And when persecution followed Paul there, he flees to Athens. And in Athens, he is all alone, and he is, quite frankly, mocked and ignored. You recall he's called a seed picker. What is this, what is this seed picker doing? What does he want? So he's in Athens. He's alone. And his traveling partners, Silas and Timothy, are still up in Macedonia. They're still up in the Thessalonican church, in the Philippian church, taking care of matters up there. Paul is exhausted. He goes to Corinth. He has very little fruit that's born in Athens. Maybe a handful of people come to faith. He heads down to Corinth. And he has, again, finds himself alone. And now he's in a city of absolute wickedness. Absolute wickedness. There was a saying that if you were someone who succumbed to the wickedness, you were Corinthianized. The temple prostitutes plied their trade, thousands of them. They had a, a temple to Aphrodite up on a hill. And at night and during the day, the temple prostitutes would come down and ply their trade in the city. It was the worst city in Greece, Corinth. And so Paul, Paul's there. He's all alone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, when he writes them a later letter, he says this to them. It gives you an idea of what he had been experiencing when he got to Corinth. He says, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. He was really, really down. He was at a low point in his life when he finally gets to Corinth. But God is faithful, isn't he? If we don't lose it, if we don't panic, if we know that God's there, we trust him. He's faithful and he is faithful. He provides, he always provides and he provided for Paul. He provided four things for Paul. First, he provided some new friends. Who were the new friends? Aquila and Priscilla. God, don't you love this? How God brings them all the way from Rome to Corinth. And they just happen to be tent makers, just like Paul. So not only does God provide new friends for him and fellowship, he provides a job for Paul. Isn't that exciting? And not only that, he stays with Priscilla and Aquila, so he has a, a place to live. And fourthly, God provides an open door for the gospel in Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla would become two of Paul's closest friends and co-laborers. We're going to meet them again and again in Paul's various letters. He mentions them. In fact, he says in Romans chapter 16, they risked their very lives for him. 
He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. So Priscilla and Aquila are substantial co-laborers, and God brings them to come alongside Paul in Corinth and encourage him. They had a business together. They were leather workers, literally, but the leather they did was used to make tents and other kinds of, of uh, uh, items. And so Paul worked together. They lived together. But he didn't neglect his ministry. While working alongside Aquila and Priscilla during the day, what were, where was Paul on the Sabbath? He was in the synagogue, as was his custom. He's working full-time, making tents, tanning leather, working with leather. And then on the Sabbath, he makes a beeline to where? The synagogue. This was his vision. This was his ministry. Now, in verse 5 of our passage, Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia. So not only does Paul have new friends, but old friends come to join him. But not only that, they bring great news, encouraging news from the Macedonian churches, from the Thessalonian church as well as from the Philippian church. But not only that, they bring him some support from those churches, which would allow Paul then to devote himself exclusively to preaching and teaching to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, notice this. He writes to the Philippians, he says, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days, so that would be the time when he'd gone from them down to Corinth, early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out to, from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in, uh, in them after giving and receiving except only you. Or even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was need. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9. When I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. So the, the Macedonian churches supplied amply for Paul so that he could continue his ministry down in Corinth. Isn't that cool? Now let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us, that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul loved the Philippians. He loved the Thessalonians. Silas and Timothy bring him good news about those churches, how they're standing firm. You recall in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about his daily concern for the churches, how it weighs on him. It's so marvelous to get good news, isn't it? You minister to somebody, you bring someone to the Lord, 
they move away or you can't be with them. And just to get a, a letter from them or a phone call said, I'm doing great. God's on the throne. My life is growing. You go, oh, oh, praise God. And you can be at a low point in your life. Isn't it great to receive good news? Absolutely. Absolutely. But again, Paul faces opposition. Verse 6 of our chapter, opposition in the synagogue. And he realizes, he comes to the place where he realizes his efforts now are absolutely futile in trying to share with these Jews. And he shakes out his clothes. Why does he do it? Why does he shake out his clothes? What is that reminiscent of? Anybody remember? Typically, if you were Jewish and you traveled through Gentile territory, after you came through that Gentile territory, you had accumulated dust on your sandals from the Gentiles' land. And you would shake that dust off. Why? Because the Gentiles were unclean. And you didn't want to take anything unclean into your land or your home, etc. So you would, you would shake the dust off. And here Paul is shaking the dust, if you will, the, the synagogue dust out of his clothes. He's absolving himself of all guilt because they will not receive the message. It's reminiscent of Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 16 through 20. Ezekiel says, at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. So here's Paul. Paul is warning the Jews. He's telling the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And if they don't believe, they're going to perish. Ezekiel says the same thing. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die. And you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life. That wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man, he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways. He will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. So what does Paul says? Paul says he shakes out his garments. He says, I'm done with you. Your blood is on what? Is on your own head. So he's absolved himself from all possibility of being guilty for their perishing. He says, I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. He doesn't go far. He goes right next door to the synagogue. I think this is fantastic. Right next door to the house of, of this Gentile, Titius Justus, right next door to the synagogue. So Paul's no longer preaching in the synagogue, but if you were a Jew, a righteous Jew, and you wanted to hear him preach, you could be walking toward the synagogue and you just turn in to this house right next door. Isn't that cool? We're told also that the, the chief of the synagogue, the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, he and his whole household become believers along with many Corinthians. So we see right there the birth of the Corinthian church starts right there next to the synagogue. The opposing Jews, they seek to stop him. They're going to try to stop the bleeding and the rise of Christianity and the rise of this talk about this Jesus, this belief in Jesus. And so they, they're going to take Paul to court before this Roman proconsul, Gallio. 
Now, Gallio was just appointed. Paul is in Corinth between the year 50 and 52 A.D. Gallio, oh no, I'm sorry, 51 and 52 A.D. Gallio comes in just in between that time. Gallio is just there for a year. I think this is absolutely fascinating. God's timing, he puts people in places just for his purpose, for the time he wants them there. Isn't this marvelous? But God brings Paul a strong word of encouragement before he goes to this court. Remember, he's facing opposition every place he goes. He, he could very well be intimidated by all this. So God brings him, brings him a word. There's four aspects to the word that God brings him. Number one, he says, Paul, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Is that an encouraging word? Yeah. I mean, to say that to him would indicate probably that Paul was somewhat intimidated by the circumstances surrounding his life. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. The second thing he tells Paul is, I'm with you. Oh, good. Okay. Have you ever wondered sometimes, God, where are you? He says what? I am with you. Oh, okay. I am with you. Kind of reminiscent of God's words to Joshua when he called Joshua and he said, don't be afraid. I'm with you. The third thing he says, no one is going to attack and harm you. No one is going to attack or harm you. I wonder sometimes if those words weren't echoing in Paul's mind when he wrote the letter to the Romans. And in chapter 8, verse 31, he says, If God be for us, who can be against us? And the fourth thing, he says, I have many people in this city. There's work to do here in Corinth. God had appointed many more in Corinth for salvation, but they needed to hear. They needed to hear. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, how will they hear if no one is sent? How will they know if they're not told? God means for Paul, he means for you and I to tell people. There are lots and lots and lots of people around us who need to hear. God's already appointed them for salvation. They are what I like to describe as the low-hanging fruit. Ripe. They just fall off in your hands. We just have to say something. You're getting your hair cut. You're sitting there in that chair. Can you say something? Say, are you a Christian? I'm a Christian. Can I pray for you? And pray for them right there in the chair. When was the last time anybody did that? I did it yesterday. Got my hair cut. I try to take advantage of every one of those moments where there's in effect kind of downtime and I'm just sitting there not doing anything. I could be praying and I could be talking. We can do things like that. We have no idea who those people are that God has appointed for salvation except that we open our mouth and we say something. It requires a tad bit of boldness, doesn't it? Does that sound like it's a fun thing to do? <laughs> Exciting? <laughs> Come on, Lindsay. <laughs> In Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul defined his preaching. This is, this is really great. 
He defined his preaching as having the purpose of bringing the elect to faith. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. His whole ministry was, he didn't know who was going to be a believer or not, but he just knew that God appointed him. You and I, like Paul, are sent ones. We may not be apostles, but we are sent ones. We don't know who it is that's going to believe. It just requires us to be faithful to open our mouth and say something. Just say something. So Paul, we're told, Luke says, Paul stayed there in Corinth for a year and a half, taught God's word in Corinth, made many, many disciples. Now, Gallio, now he's hauled before Gallio, the proconsul or the governor. And Gallio, after hearing the Jews' charges against Paul. Now, their charges were he's teaching an illicit religion. He's talking about a God that we don't know. The Roman government looked on Christianity. They were tolerated Christianity because they looked on it as a sect of Judaism. And so they tolerated it. But, of course, the Jews don't want to have anything to do with it. They're considering these Christians blasphemous, and they should be destroyed, and Christianity should be uh, outlawed. So Gallio, here's that, here's that, uh, that uh, charge against Paul. That he's preaching, teaching this illicit religion. It has nothing to do with us. What does Gallio do? How does he rule? Does he rule in favor of the Jews or in favor of Paul? He rules in favor of Paul. What would have happened, do you think, if he'd have ruled in favor of the Jews and convicted Paul? Any Roman proconsul or governor of any area like Achaia, once they made a ruling, that become precedent. So all the other proconsuls, all the other governors then would have to, they'd be required to follow that ruling. We all know about precedent, right? So that would be a precedent. And that would effectively destroy Christianity right there in that area, in all the while, all throughout Roman Empire. This is a crucial thing that happens. God brings Gallio for that period of time to rule that area, make that critical decision, which allowed Christianity to go on for another 10 to 12 years without persecution. The Romans didn't persecute Christianity until Nero came to the throne. And persecution started with Nero because Nero was married to an adherent of Judaism. And his wife was adamantly opposed to Judaism. And that stoked Nero up to start persecuting the Christians in the church. But they had about a 10 to 12 year period of peace where the gospel could expand in that era throughout the Roman Empire. Is that exciting? So what happens in the, in the, uh, in the court there, Gallio rules in favor of Paul... And the ruler of the synagogue now is a new guy by the name of Sosthenes. Presumably, he's representing the Jewish charges against Paul. He's the leader of the synagogue. So what happens to Sosthenes? 
Everybody there turns on him and they beat the heck out of him. Assuming he's bungled the deal. Sometimes you feel really ticked off at somebody who's bungled some real important deal and you want to smack them, right? <laughs> it's interesting. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, it may be that very Sosthenes who becomes a Christian himself. So Crispus, the first leader of the synagogue, becomes a Christian. And now very possibly Sosthenes. In 1 Corinthians 1, 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Isn't that cool? So he may, in fact, have become a believer. If I were smacked around by my brother Jews, I probably would become a believer too. So God was faithful to Paul. In his time of need, time of discouragement, he's been carrying the burden of the churches, he's been persecuted, he's been rejected, everything's been happening to him. But God's faithful. God's faithful. God is faithful to all who faithfully trust him and serve him. I read a verse years ago. It has been such a blessing to me. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. Where God says, honor me and I'll honor you. Wow. I can't tell you how that verse has encouraged me year after year after year. Honor me and I'll honor you. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29 through 31. He, meaning God, gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. God does this. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who, what? Hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, they will run and not be weary. They'll walk and they will not be faint. Is God faithful? If all you can do is hold on, just hold on. But you hold on because you have hope. You have hope. And of course, there's the greatest promise in the Bible. I love this. This is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. How I many know what that verse is? Romans 8, 28. And Paul says what? He says, we hope. No, we know. We know that God works all things together for our good because we what? Love him and have been called according to his purpose. And remember, his purpose is to make us like who? Make us like Jesus. And whatever happens... Whatever happens, God's at work. He's so awesome. He's so wonderful that he can take any circumstance, overrule it, transform it, and use it for our good, even a tragedy in our life. God. He doesn't want us to moan. He doesn't want us to whine. He doesn't want us to be discouraged. He doesn't want us to be anxious about anything. He wants us to look up and know that he's still on the throne. And he's at work. He's awesome. He's God. He's in control of everything. He is absolutely sovereign. Hallelujah. 
Somebody say, praise the Lord. Years ago, I made a decision. I, will, I refuse to be anxious about anything. I refuse to sign for the package. Do you think the circumstances in my life are all rosy? No. Do you think that right here, there's someone blowing in my ear trying to get me going? Yeah. I refuse to sign for the package. I refuse to be anxious. I refuse to be discouraged. I have no reason to be discouraged. Humanly speaking, yes, I do. But I'm more than human. I am superhuman. Aren't we? We are Hooper Nikomen. Super Nikes. That's what Paul says. We're more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors. Don't be discouraged. Don't allow yourself to cross over that line. Why? Because God is with you. God is with you. Look up. Live hopefully. And don't be anxious for anything. Don't be anxious for anything. Well, that pastor, you... No, don't be anxious for anything. You're, you're accustomed to being anxious. You're accustomed to being discouraged. That's all you know. You've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten who's in charge. You've forgotten whose you are. This is why we gather together. This is why we must come together regularly to be reminded of these things. Your present circumstances may not be what you like. They may not be what you want. But God is faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful. And to do anything else other than trust in him is sin. It's sin. His ways, remember are not our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Isaiah chapter 55, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are, my, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than yours. We're always trying to tell God what to do and how things should run. He just goes, when are they going to trust me? When are they going to trust me? How many know that life is not a ride on a pink duck? But God is there, isn't he? God is there. And he's, he's not passive. He's not just going, oh, too bad. He's intimately, in, intimately involved. And the Apostle Paul writes to us in Romans 12, too, that God's purposes are good, pleasing, and perfect. 
Lord, I know that your will and your purposes, I don't know how I got here. I don't understand these circumstances, but I know you and I know you understand. I'm going to rest in that knowledge. I will not be anxious. I will not be discouraged and I will not complain, though I may be sorely tempted to. Eh, nope. Those words are not going to cross my lips. I'm going to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Give him thanks. Give him thanks. Give him thanks. Thank him this morning. Praise him this morning. Exalt his name this morning. Amen. I have to save some for 11 o'clock. Shall we pray? Lord, as we anticipate your table, we thank you that you love us with a love that we can't possibly fathom. While we were still yet your enemies, Jesus, you died for us. We thank you for putting a hook in our jaw and dragging us to you. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign and that, Lord, you, every detail of our life, you know. And thank you that your purpose for us is good, pleasing, and perfect. We love you this morning. We pray your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives more fully. The lives of our families, our church, this community, and to the ends of the earth. We thank you, Father. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org. Dot org.